This is Bonjour Chai, the Smoke and Mirrors edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, the wildfires are still raging, and we examine what role Jewish organizations should play in the climate discussion. Plus, we examine kosher burgers, Jewish roles, and lots more other things coming right up. Phoebe, how's it going? It's going well. How about you, Avi? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been smoky here. It's getting smokier. We're going to have an interview uh, later on with um, somebody about the Jewish view on this and uh, Jewish organizations. Um, but other than that, it's summertime. So, you know, the jazz festival is starting. Other festivals are starting. It's a beautiful time to be alive in Canada, in Montreal, uh, in the summertime. Uh, well, that's that's something. <laughs> yeah. How have you been? It's going well here in Toronto. Um, today is junior kindergarten, well, kindergarten graduation. So um, audio listener type people cannot see, but I wore a dress today. So I'm dressed up for the event, the event of the season. Um, it's happening in the middle of the day. So there probably will not be a ton of people there, parents at least, but uh, I'm excited about it. Will it be juice, juice boxes in tall flutes um, celebrating? <laughs> Apparently, it's going to be something called freezies. Oh, yes. That's the Canadian. Is that the tube yes. that's frozen? Okay. Yes. Because my daughter was asking me if I'd ever had a freezy, and I didn't know what a freezy was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. They seem very excited about it, the yeah. children. <laughs> so, um, like, mere hours after I... Uh, talked about that tweet last week after my about my nachas about uh, kosher restaurants uh, i get an email uh from a colleague about this new restaurant that's opening up in midtown manhattan selling freezies presumably no no <laughs> selling the opposite selling a um, 175 dollar gold-plated burger ah okay um i sent you this article um <laughs> did you have a chance to look at this i did i skimmed <laughs> through it um it seems not very nice <laughs> i don't know and, well it's like it's a style of cuisine that i've definitely read about before i don't know if i've ever personally been in a restaurant serving it um it's like tacky food i don't know yeah so it's like not it's it's like the i mean i don't know it's the sort of mcmansion of food approach oh my god yes that's its, the mcmansion of food. it has its audience i'm sure it's no like you know if i really step back that's no better or worse than spending a ton of money on any other food ethically it's all a bit ridiculous um but it just seems a little silly like the a gold leaf hamburger or whatever yeah so Look, full disclosure, um, I happen to know the proprietor, Naftali Abinayim. He was my study partner in yeshiva in high school. Um, he was a really nice guy. He seems like a really nice guy. Um, but he seems to have made this turn into restaurateur. Uh, and from hat maker. From hat maker to restaurateur to many, from many, many other things. And like, I have to say, and like, he's a nice guy, but like, it's kind of douchey restaurateur sort of like cuisine. And I, I, I don't know what to make of it. Like, I... Like when you called it the McMansion of food, I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly it. He had a uh, small dairy restaurant in Teaneck, New Jersey called Mocha Bleu, uh, which became, uh, he had a place then called Mocha Burger. Uh, he has Mocha Red and now he has Mocha Burger Lux. And Can this I is just what's ask a, quest a quick question about yes, this? Because please. Mocha is a beverage that I yes, sometimes yes. enjoy involving uh, coffee or espresso milk and uh, chocolate and sugar. Does that 
name evoke a gold-plated hamburger to you? So, <laughs> I mean, according to the article, um, he named the dairy restaurant Mocha Bleu after the blue and brown after the blue and brown jacquard wallpaper that adorned the walls. Okay. Um, and I presume that because it was a dairy-based restaurant, uh, Mocha made sense. It was more of a cafe-style mm -hmm. look and vibe. But you're right. This is what happens when you get trapped into like a naming convention mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense anymore. Mocha is a coffee and dairy a milk-based beverage mm -hmm. and it doesn't really like fit into this burger steakhouse sort of that like vibe. To, mm -hmm. That gets uh, to a question I have for you about this though that's like super Jewish, okay? Please. The part that jumped out at me, like first I'm like, okay, this kind of seems like a tacky restaurant, whatever. Um, I'm obviously extremely far from the target audience. I go and have like Vietnamese food in Chinatown as my preferred meal out. So I'm probably not going to this restaurant. However, what interested me was this whole question of the kosher cheeseburger and the fake cheese on a hamburger and why, and because according to this article, there's controversy around whether that's okay or not. Is there indeed controversy about this? I think there may have been controversy at some point in time, but okay. so many kosher restaurants are doing it now. I um, see. You know, once the vegans have done a good job of making like vegan cheese or at least meltable vegan cheese sauces, mm -hmm. and you often see it on kosher like menus as like X E E like Z or something like cheese or something like that, sort of not quite cheese, and people know that that's what it is. And there's an understanding that if it's a kosher restaurant and it's serving you like a cheeseburger, it's not real cheese, but that's there. And he's I think drumming up this idea that like oh I invented this thing and I'm I the see. source of all these things. I mean, look, I, he, he imports his beef from Uruguay because he cannot source kosher hormone and antibiotic free, free range grass fed cattle within the U S and he spent nine months experimenting to come up with the special short rib blend that he uses for his burgers. Right. Um, I'm going to quote to you from a website called grow and behold, um, who are great meat uh, providers in the U.S. and right away on their first line of their website says, "Our promise to you: raised on pasture, no hormones, no growth promoting antibiotics, and they're kosher." So the stuff is available in America. He's just cheap and doesn't want to spend the money on, and rather bring <laughs> it in from Uruguay and I pretends see. that like this is the only thing that he's bringing in. Like nobody else does this. I mean, the whole thing <laughs> seems a little. I'm sorry, I, I hate to say this since this is your friend, but it, it seems just a little. I haven't silly. spoken to him. Okay. Okay. 25 okay. years okay. so please i mean the way like because they the article is like how does he what's the point of it like who's going to order this and it, he says something like people who feel that they are special and everybody feels that they're special according to the article and it's like in the quote or whatever and yeah. it's like well yeah everybody does feel that they're special but not everybody wants to eat a 175 dollar golden hamburger so uh while i do Say, I do still think that this comparison with a McMansion holds. I also think a lot of times people criticize one expensive thing because it's tacky and not another expensive thing that they think is more tasteful. And I think like there's ultimately, you know, if people are choosing to spend money on indulging themselves rather than whatever, giving it to charity, you know, like I don't know that it makes a huge difference which way they go with it. Um, what did strike me, though, another thing about um, this particular high-end kosher hamburger was I just was reading this morning a review in the New York Times, I think by Pete Wells, of something called Superiority Burger, which is a mm -hmm. very different sounding New York restaurant that's um, that would be of interest to people who are certain levels of kosher, not others. It's uh, vegetarian and vegan. So different, you know, like so somebody who's avoid avoiding, you know, 
pork and shellfish would be able to do it, but somebody probably looking for certifications from rabbis, perhaps not. But in any case, um, that review describes a very, very sort of of the moment New York vibe, I suppose, right? Like a certain type of atmosphere. So this is a restaurant that doesn't use meat, right? So it's also a hamburger restaurant. And when I think of like 2023 New York City hamburger restaurant, I would more think something like that, if that makes sense. So this seems like a little bit not, I don't mean that it can't, that things can't be behind the curve, but that it does sound like it is a little behind the curve. Look, kosher consumers are always behind the curve. Yes, that might be, that may be. And we're always, you know, being given things that were cool 10 years ago. I think a lot of Jews still think sushi is cool. Sushi is so de rigueur in a lot of Jewish events and a lot of Jewish restaurants. And often and a lot of kosher in restaurants. with other cuisines. Yes, and ways pizza and sushi unexpected. is like the standard thing you would expect to find in a, like a, a basic kosher restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's dairy and it's easy and whatever. Um, and... You know, I think that the market has moved far away from the non-kosher market has moved very far away from these performance-based spaces, like even Salt Bay, which is like clearly what this thing is modeled out, off of, right? The the guy who does the the, the spreading of salt extravagantly off, bouncing it off of his uh, like elbow and serving uh, serving fifteen hundred dollars okay. steaks that are often gold wrapped okay. and stuff. Like he's the only one doing this right now, and. Uh, that that move in that in that sphere of performative food and not food that tastes amazing has moved like the world has moved far away from that even like we're even turning away from like food as art and the the whole noma uh, like alinea sort of like space of like fancy uh dining at three four five hundred dollars a person for extremely elevated food even or like the molecular that, gastronomy or whatever yeah which modernist I, I, cuisine i'm very knowledgeable about this i'm eating it right now i don't even know it flew into my mouth um, yeah and and, and like they're moving towards food that is a little more honest, food that is a little more like let's be aware of what's on the plate. Let's not necessarily spend a ton of time or energy putting uh, effort into like the decor. We'd rather just serve you something that's a little real. Um, and this does not feel real at all. And this is just behind the curve. But mm-hmm. if that's what you know the kosher consumer wants to be and be behind the curve and people want to spend that money like you said i happen to think that it is extremely fake and uh, mcmansiony when it comes to food uh, even that he, he was touting this 10 foot tall sculpture that he has this cause sculpture that is there like it is invariably going to be fake because a one foot tall cause sculpture costs $2,000. And the last time I saw a life-size or bigger cause sculpture was at the Brooklyn Museum, right? He is not having one in a midtown kosher restaurant that is going to be a real one. He's just bought a fake and just put it up there to like so, show that what's going on. This is who he is doing stuff for. And I'm like, great. You're a wonderful so he's guy. Canadian. He's Canadian. He is Canadian. But yes. I have a question because this is, you know, the Canadian Jewish news and all. Is there in Toronto, if somebody, or in Montreal, or in Winnipeg, or in Halifax, or wherever, Vancouver, is there a gold-plated, perhaps $200 to account for exchange rates? I I highly doubt it. (laughs) Hamburger. There is Chops, which uh, the less I will say about it, the better, uh, which is a restaurant in Montreal, and there's probably a Toronto equivalent, but... um, I am not going to talk much about chops for fear of incriminating myself um, or other people. And uh, it's a wonderfully upscale priced um, restaurant. And that's all I'll say about that. Fair enough. Phoebe, what's been crossing your radar these days? (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of food and restaurants, uh, there um, there is a certain fictitious 
Pakistani restaurant in New York that has been on my mind. Um, how's that for a segue? Oh, yes, of course. Please um, tell us more. So there's, um, I don't know if uh, everybody who listens is a Seinfeld aficionado to the extent certainly that I am. But, um, and, and the, so this is very much caught up in my head with the soup Nazi plotline, but there are two different plotlines. Okay, so let's keep these all apart. There was the near, I think it's probably one of the later seasons of Seinfeld, Babu. Okay, Babu mm-hmm. Bhatt, a Pakistani mm-hmm. restaurateur who Jerry tries to help, but ends up, I guess, getting deported back to Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And these are scenes that even at the time were a bit cringe-inducing, I suppose, to maybe some audiences, maybe not others. You know, like it, it was one of these things that like would not one of the sort of sitcom wouldn't you wouldn't see it today kind of thing. This was this was the episode with the famous lines like, and I will not use the accent, but uh, Jerry said the wheels were in motion, the wheels were in motion, yes. the wheels were not in motion. And uh, when he offers him a snapple, he goes, no thanks, too fruity. That's correct. That is yes, correct. Yes. Um, and I had, you know, I, I remember this well because this also was very much like, Seinfeld was just before 9-11 and then there was a lot of discussion just after about Islamophobia, you know, how the U.S. was behaving in terms of the war on terror and all of these things and it all got very wrapped up and like this was, this became really one of the sort of like, like the problematic Seinfeld, pablomatic even, perhaps. Sure, sure. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) Uh, but the point is that some, but then it just recently crossed my Twitter feed. Somebody's pointing out that Brian George, uh, the British actor who plays Babu, um, I'm on his Wikipedia page now, okay? He was born in Jerusalem in 1952 to Jewish parents of Lebanese, Indian, and Iraqi descent who had immigrated to Israel, okay? And he also, um, okay, a year after his birth, the family moved from Israel to London and then in 1966 to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And he went to a public co-ed high school in Toronto and attended but did not graduate from the University of Toronto. So this is my big Canadian Jewish news that I am not exactly right now. I am not breaking it in the sense that this has probably been on Wikipedia all along. Um, but what interested me about this specifically is that when you talk about like, not you, Avi, but when one talks about the Jewish history of Seinfeld or Jewish representation, of Seinfeld, whatever, I had never heard this mentioned. I had never heard the fact that Babu is Jewish. And what does it all mean? I mean, it's a little I, obvious what it all means. But anyway, what do you think? I mean, I think that what it all means is that when Seinfeld was being produced, nobody was really... Uh, like looking for Jews in all the right corners or all the wrong corners. And uh, there uh, there was no question about people's backgrounds. Was, these were oh, bit no, actors. No, no, these no. were character actors. And there were questions about people's backgrounds, but only if they were white, I think, or if they came across as white. Oh, meaning you couldn't pass I think there as was a tremendous. I think there was a tremendous amount of interest in who on Seinfeld was Jewish. I think that was... And this super, never came up. This never came up. And I suspect it's because Babu was... Uh, presented well, as a non-white character, and but but he, I mean, he is of Iraqi Lebanese descent. Yes, and that's right. Is the so thing. so so here's the thing: Does that mean that whether or not somebody of his descent is reading as white in the U.S. context is extremely contextual? And the reason I say this is another um, sort of 
vaguely Jewish media story that I, it's a bit old, but I'm still a little bit fixated on it. The man repeller blogger, Leandra Medine Cohen, has very similar ancestry uh, to Brian George. She was sort of canceled as a problematic white woman in the sort of 2021 um, cycle of all of that. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's all very contextual. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I... Yeah, like we're no stranger to the discussion on Bonjour High about who gets to play who. Um, mm-hmm. Does somebody, you know, who gets to play somebody who is non-white, who presumably is coming from Indian background, and this person is Lebanese and uh, Iraqi, but is Canadian? Uh, like, well, Pakistani. Uh, on, Pakistani. On, uh, yeah. Sorry, Pakistan as well. So there you go. No, yes. no, I mean Seinfeld, uh, the character was Pakistani. I, I meant Southeast yes. Asia in general. Fair I enough, fair um, enough. Yes, yeah. I, I stand corrected. Um, and, and I stand humbled by... No, not, there, the know, Wikipedia... Yes. I'm sorry, but this I just to, just to say this, Wikipedia page mentions about like 20 different nationalities to do with the character, the person, yeah. where the person lived. It's like there's, there's no shame in being a little muddled in this, I think. How would one not be? I... Yeah, this is... Um, I, I don't know much about man. I, I remember that man repeller was around in the in the like fashion online fashion revolution, which they called now nowadays in the, the men's world was the the hashtag menswear era, um, and man repeller was there as the like female counterpoint to that. Um, you should be canceled for being problematic, hundred percent. If you are a toxic, uh, and I don't mean that in the technical term, if you are a if you are a person who contributes to uh, a problematic workplace, yes, you should absolutely be canceled. Um, but I don't know. I don't like this well, is the what, question what's of the, the, the relevant thing here. I think is not whether her workplace was toxic or not. A question about which I have zero opinion because I've not looked yeah, into yeah. it. But rather. She was lumped in culturally in all these articles about the girl bosses with like she was another one of the white ladies who was being bad. Yeah. So look, I mean, the question and is, was she a white lady? And she calls herself one, you know, how much does your does your religion right play into your whiteness or non whiteness? And this is where whiteness as a category um, ceases to be like easy and useful to to hold on to because somebody who is as waspy as they get and wears their Nantucket reds, you know, and the, you know, and goes to, you know, Hyannisport like this, like the whitest of the white and decides to convert to Judaism. Do they no longer like become white in the eyes of the people who say that Jews are a ethnic minority? Well, you can just uh, point to Ivanka Trump for that. I mean, sure. Is yeah. Ivanka like, Trump, <laughs> is Ivanka Trump, um, well, what? how do you even put this? I don't even know. I don't even know where I'm going with this. But the point is that um, I just found this interesting when I was thinking about, um, yeah, I, I certainly don't think there was any problem with this that actor playing Babu in terms of like, oh, it's not the exact same. I don't think, I don't think that would be, I don't know that anybody would be objecting on that level. I think the objections to the character were more the sort of the accent and also just the kind of like, you know, the sort of yeah that's very you know it was this whole thing where the show was a very very white picture of new york and when they did break with it it got extra torn apart because like did they do it in the right way this is the part that i think is weird um about this and with this like maybe we should wrap this up because we're going far away from all of this um what right does one have to have an accent um if they are no accents are allowed if they have that ethnicity right and the fact is like he probably has some you know authentic uh, 
you know, connection to the accent, to the type of character that he's playing, but he's playing a stereotype. This is not like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's level, right? A white person playing a really, really Asian stereotype that's problematic. Um, Kim's convenience, the parents speaking. Yeah, so that would be to give a sort of more contemporary Canadian angle. Apparently, like I I love Kim's convenience and I really enjoy it. As do I. Um, But, or I should say enjoyed it because I guess it ended and... um, and it has a very handsome actor in it who's now a big movie star. Um, but yeah, the accents that the parents have, um, apparently some people find this a problem. I think most don't, though. I think it's because how the alternative would be having them speak Korean the, to each I'm other. Saying, but the difference is there in, the, in that case. Um, this is a... A, a this is a performance. This is a mm-hmm. script that is written by Koreans, right, for the wider audience. But that they're able to police and to work with this. Babu, in mm-hmm. this case, mm-hmm. um, is reading lines um, that are highly stereotypical, written by white people, without you know, or by non-Pakistani people that yes. are not necessarily consulting with Pakistani people to say like, "Hey, are you can saying we there say wasn't this? a sensitivity re- reader on Seinfeld?" I, I, I don't think <laughs> Sorry. so. Yeah, I wouldn't think so either. <laughs> Speaking of problematic roles, um, this happened yesterday and I really like it threw me for a loop and uh, I really want to hear your take on this. Um, my kid uh, loves the Seagull Center. All my kids love the Seagull Center, which is, I guess, the equivalent of the Koffler Center in uh, Toronto, except that it's not multidisciplinary. It's mainly just a, per, uh, a theater space. Um, it's Jewish. It's Jewish funded. It's uh, funded by the community in part, uh, I believe. Um, and has a mandate to do some Jewish programming, um, but it's always been seen as like the Jewish, you know, theater space. And lately they've been moving away from certain practices, which I may not be happy with, but that's like their thing. So they, they've started doing some select performances on Shabbat when they used to not do that. They don't serve kosher uh, exclusively anymore. um, Meaning it's available as a possible, as a, like a, an option for certain events, but not necessarily the default of, uh, is always everything is going to be kosher. But it was always like the Jewy space, and that's where my kids go to Yiddish, do Yiddish theater, and, and that's where the Yiddish theater resides, and all of that stuff is there. Um, and so she signed up for theater camp, right, at the Siegel Center, and the they, she comes back from her first day. It's a two-week thing where you learn on the first day what the play is and you perform, you rehearse it and you perform it on the last day at the end of two weeks. So it's two full weeks of rehearsal for one play. And she comes home and tells us that the play that they're going to be doing this year at the Siegel Center is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And like, I was thinking to myself, one of the reasons why I send my kid to the Siegel Center is that I don't imagine that I have to have a conversation with my kid about the fact that The Nightmare Before Christmas is a play that she has to perform because that's the camp play. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find out that that's actually not the case. Now, am I like over the top here? Is this valid consideration um, that I should be assuming that a Jewish um, affiliated institution should not be performing the night before, Nightmare Before Christmas? Or, mm-hmm. or, or, or am I right? Uh, help me out here. Or there's <laughs> well, there I, nuance. To, Let's I'm hope that there's to nuance. <laughs> right into the Bintel briefs um, to ask because I feel like they would probably have the more intricate version of the answer. I mean. My question, I'm going to respond to your question with some questions myself, as is tradition, of course. Um, I would wonder, as somebody familiar somewhat with like 
equivalent institutions in New York. Not so, I, I don't, if you ask me where on a map is this Koffler Center, I could not begin to tell you. So I'm not going to be able to say much about that. But what I would wonder is, what are the demographics of this program? Like specifically of the children in the program? Because if, what I would say is, if this is a mainly Jewish observant or not, let's set that question aside. If this is a sort of a Jewish summer camp, it's a super weird choice. If it's a camp in a building that is like roughly affiliated with the Jewish history, but that today's demographics and that neighborhood, whatever, if, if that's not, if it's not really like a Jewish summer camp in any sense, it's just that those are the demographics. We are living in a minority Jewish country. So, so to place it geographically, it stands between, it's a building that sits between the Federation building across mm-hmm. the street from it, and behind it, the Jewish Y, right? The JCC, right? What we call the mm-hmm. YMOWHA, the Sylvan mm-hmm. Adams JCC, whatever you're going to call it. So it is squarely in the heart of the Jewish campus of, of okay. buildings. Um, it is historically Jewish. It has internally a mandate to do Jewish-themed uh, you know, pieces at least once a year. Mm-hmm. That is where the Jewish arts mentorship is housed, uh, where our uh, former co-host uh, Alana Zakon just graduated from the from an arts mentorship that was called the Jewish Arts Mentorship. That is where mm-hmm. the Yiddish theater is. That is what the the youth programs have a program called Yaya, y- uh, Yiddish Young Actors for Yiddish, sorry, Yiddish something for young actors, young actors, Yiddish audiences. That's what it is, something like that. Um, and so there's definitely a Jewish theme. If you ask me the demographic of the kids that are there in the summer camp, I asked my daughter. She goes, not everybody's Jewish. So there are definitely non-Jews that are there, um, but there are definitely a lot of Jews that are in that summer camp. Um, is everybody kosher to the, uh, no. Is everybody Shomer Shabbat? Uh, she's the only one I would say that is probably, that is actually keeping Shabbat on a weekly basis. Like, or in an orthodox way. Um, and so that's the demographic and that's the geography. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. The The only sort of Canadian comparison I could have is um, before the pandemic, we were living close, sort of more centrally downtown in Toronto and the daycare we were going to send my older daughter to, but then we moved and we're not living near it. So we didn't, is a JCC daycare that we toured. And what I learned about that is it's not that it's all Jewish families, but it's definitely like Jewish themed. So if there's mm-hmm. going to be a theme, if there's going to be a cultural theme, it's going to be Jewish. It doesn't mean that everybody is an observant Jew. It doesn't even mean that everybody is Jewish at all. It's just that, that this is a Jewish place. You know, it's like the, it's the Miles Nadal JCC that I'm talking yeah, yeah. about. So um, I guess what I would say in terms of your question and how this relates is just this does not strike me as very Jewish themed and more to the point, it doesn't seem like one of these sort of neutral themed things that could go either way. It does seem like a sort of, it's also like a gratuitous, I just not to be all like seasonal, but this is summer is a time when, when Jews are generally not like doing a whole to be a Jew at Christmas discourse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why, like, of all things to think about in June, I don't know. There are thousands of plays, and they could have picked anything else, right? And I know that it's a fun play, but there are thousands of other fun plays that they could have picked. Um, And I just, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I have... I'm in the right here that like this is not the appropriate play that they should have picked um and I I feel like I'm stuck because I'm not going to tell my kid to not go to theater camp anymore um especially like she loves theater and she's going to get to like be part of this but I don't know what to like you know help me 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think some of this is the nature of being, you know, a minority community in a bigger place. And but this is why is you real. have institutions that you yes, get to have your why, say. This is, I mean, I think... I would be curious how this was selected. Um, I think, and I say this not in the sort of like euphemistic, so we can get that person. No, not at all. More just like, I'm just curious about the process because it does jump out as like something that probably, I, I doubt you're the only person who's reacting a little hmm to this because to me, this does not break down on secular versus observant lines at all. I think Jewish sort of, squickiness about Christmas is an extremely common secular Jewish feeling too, or, you know, just other denominations. I don't think you would have to be Orthodox to care about this. I don't, I think it's different from saying like, could an observant Jew play a character in a, like as, you know, in a mainstream production, you're right. This is like a Jewish institution. So yeah, I mean, I would be curious, but I would think that the practical question would be, what do you want going forward? Does this tell you, like, what would you want from them going forward, assuming you go there next year? I, I hate to use this word, be sensitivity, right? But I just, I, I want a bare, like, minimum of awareness that there are Jewish people who might not celebrate Christmas um, or have certain plays, you know, like, I don't think they should be performing Jesus Christ Superstar, how, however wonderful a play it might be. <laughs> It would be, I'm sorry, not to make light, but it would be extremely funny if it's that the following year. And yeah, then the, and then the following um, year, there's a musical version of The Last Temptation of Christ, right? Like, I, I don't think that these are <laughs> plays that, like, I want to see at the Siegel Center. But yeah, anyways, that's uh, that's my thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm with you on this. I think it's weird. Um, I also, like, I mean, I'm much more familiar with, like, the scenario of it's some secular institution that's not acknowledging Jewish cultural and religious practices where it's, like, you want to pester, but also you have to acknowledge the demographics. But here, this seems like a Jewish institution serving Jews and just that kind of put its foot in it in this particular case. I, my hunch is that they will be embarrassed and feel a bit silly about this and that they I hope probably so. not do it again. I hope so. And on that note, let us move on to our interview with Rabbi Yonatan Nerol about Jewish institutions and the climate crisis right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. When I moved back to Canada about 10 years ago, one of the things that I realized was that we don't have hurricanes, we don't have any other storms, we don't have a lot of extreme heat. Uh, and as a result, you know, the weather felt kind of good and we didn't have to think about uh, sustainability at a local level not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about sustainability at a global level, um, but, you know, it was always a point of pride to be able to go to Americans and say, yeah, our neighborhoods are safe from climate issues or whatever, or our cities are safe, our country is relatively, you know, not going to be as affected. Uh, but wildfires have changed that. Uh, wildfires are, we're in the 
middle of wildfire season, uh, Canadian wildfires have affected large parts of all of North America in uh, in the past little while, and we're not yet at the end of this season's wildfires, and that means that we think about this stuff a lot. In the past, we've had uh, Tsipora Berman on to talk about why this is a Jewish issue, uh, and today, you know, because it's on the front of our minds, we decided to revisit this discussion with uh, a new perspective. Joining us is Rabbi Yonatan Nerol. He's the founder of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. He's also the co-author of the Eco Bible, an ecological commentary on the Torah, along with Rabbi Leo D. Rabbi Yonatan, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Great to be here. One of the things that we had actually we've been discussing previously, and we, we've talked in person about this, we've met uh, in the past, and it's something that I've been talking to other people and, and colleagues about this, right, was the fact that uh, we don't hear a lot of rabbis, we especially even don't hear a lot of major Jewish organizations outside of one specifically focused on sustainability, um, talking about climate change within the Jewish community from the pulpits, from, you know, weekly newsletters and stuff like that. Part of me wants to believe that maybe we shouldn't. There's so many other topics that need to get addressed that are particular to the Jewish community and for the Jewish community. Maybe if you're a Jew who's involved in, you know, climate change, go find an organization that is devoted to climate change and uh, repairing the environment in a way, you know, in a way that works and do that outside of the Jewish community and leave the Jewish community issues that are specifically Jewish related. Well, if you said that to me a month ago, then I might have said something different. But as you just mentioned, Canada has been affected by a record-setting series of wildfires and it's affected 11 provinces and territories, um, burned 13 million acres, which is over 5 million hectares. And there are 385 active wildfires as of last week. 130 of them were deemed uncontrollable, meaning the, the Canadian Fire Service is not able to control those fires. And so to say that, you know, uh, so that leave uh, the climate crisis to the environmentalists and uh, the Jewish community can just focus on its own issues of, uh, you know, addressing anti-Semitism and focusing on Jewish education, etc. So I would say, well, gotta, this is affecting the Jewish community as well, and we're all in the same boat, so we need to really work on this together. What is the case for the fact that this might be an actual Jewish issue? Well, I would say a couple of things. One is that since Jews are also uh, inhabitants of the earth, we are uh, Adam is from the Adama, and uh, so we are in this together. We Jews are not, you know, we don't have a, a, a get out of free card in regards to living sustainably here. Um, and so I would say that we have to contribute our part just as any other people in the world. Uh, that's one aspect of it. But a second aspect of it is that. The Jews have a special role to play in the world, uh, and you know we see that mentioned in the Torah. Uh, and I, one of my teachers, uh, when I was studying in Jerusalem a number of years ago, likened it to uh, a ship. So the Jews are a small people, um, but we're sort of like the rudder on the ship that, to change the direction, to determine the direction of the ship. So Jews have a leadership role to play in helping all of humanity lives sustainably. And that's that's part of our tafkid, part of our, our mission and our responsibility here, in my opinion. One of the things that I've noticed, right, is that if we are that 
uh, people and the place that we have chosen to claim as our piece of land or that God gave us as a piece of land is Israel, um, I find that there are large swaths of the country or large parts of the population where sustainability isn't that big of an issue, right? Uh, there, I think Israel, the, the statistic that I have heard that Israel is one of the world leaders in consumption of single-use plastics and consumables. Uh, and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of litter everywhere. Um, there are places where Israel is a leader in terms of sustainability, in terms of, uh, you know, desalination plants and, uh, you know, greening the, the desert and various other, uh, you know, power because there's not a lot of uh, oil is expensive going to Israel. So there's needs a lot of alternative energy sources. But there's a lot of places where Israel as a country and Israelis as a people could be doing so much better. Um, do you notice that? I mean, you're speaking to us from Jerusalem. Uh, is this uh, something that you have seen and you wish would be different? Or uh, do you have a different experience than that? Yeah, I, uh, that is my impression as well. Uh, as I was picking up my daughter from school yesterday and walking her back home, she asked me, why does the air in Jerusalem smell like smoke? And I explained to her, well, it's because part of the Jerusalem forest is burning. So there's another example of how Israel, which is uh, more vulnerable to climate change than Canada, although Canada is also, as, as you're seeing, not you know not exempt, uh, it, we're, we're feeling it here. Uh, and the fact that you know Israel has one of the highest per capita consumption of disposable plastics and one of the high, highest per capita consumption of chicken um, shows that there's a long way to go in terms of sort of moving the needle on sustainability, especially within religious communities. Um, this is, you know, the, a lot of people think that religion is one thing and ecology is another thing, uh, that, you know, religion is this, you know, we study sacred texts and we pray and we gather in houses of worship. And then ecology is, you know, walking in nature and it's these tree huggers and, uh, you know, environmentalists, climate scientists. Well, no, actually, there's a deep connection between the two, and and it pains me to see that uh, you know in in religious communities uh, of, of even of different faith, it's not just within Jewish community um, that that there's this disconnect between sustainability and spirituality, uh, and that you know my vision is for a uh, religious practice that is encompassing of ecological practice. Um, and so when I see the opposite, when religious practice actually contributes to more consumptive behavior and, and more environmental degradation, so then you know, I, I see the work we have to do. I have to say one of the, uh, the best examples of technology I find in Israel is that Israel has managed to come up with the thinnest possible plastic to take a, uh, something that is thicker than a plastic bag, but is able enough and stable enough to be a cup. Right. If you've noticed this, of people who have been to Israel, the plastic cups in Israel are so incredibly thin, but they manage to stand up and they manage to be used. So they're not using as much plastic as anywhere else because I guess they are thinking about resources. But one thing I find about Israel, I don't know if you've noticed this, if, if you can echo that, uh, but like the they manage to figure out how little in terms of resources to use, even though they're using so many of them. <laughs> it, it's an interesting observation, although I would venture to say that many of those plastic cups that you're referring to are actually made in China. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. What are some examples of your ability to, or, or the way that you think about the connection between spirituality and sustainability? Well, you know, one example is, uh, is Jacob. There's a, there's a teaching, uh, in the book of Genesis that Jacob, Yaakov, 
crossed a stream as Esau of Esau was approaching it with the 400-man militia, and Jacob went back for small vessels and risked his life to recover a few small vessels that he left on the other side of the stream. And the Talmud asks, well, why did he do it? And there's different explanations, some of them Hasidic, and, and one understanding uh, based on a more of a Hasidic understanding is that he went back for these small cups because all of his possessions he considered uh, as as worthy of him raising up the holy sparks of holiness in them. And if he were to leave these cups on the other side of the stream and abandon them, then he would not fulfill his divine mission in in using the physical unholiness. And so this relates to, to the other plastic cups you mentioned, because connecting to our possessions and, and using them many times and, and having durable resource use, whether it's clothing or cups or other things, uh, that's that's part and parcel of being Jewish. It's uh, you know, there's many teachings in the Talmud about about concern for possessions and um, not from a materialistic place, but from from a place of responsibility. That here is a physical object that people have invested, you know, especially in ancient times, a lot of time with, in hand making, and 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 that God put in creation these holy sparks. And as as spiritual people, we need to raise up those sparks through our conscious consumption of those of those items. Fascinating. So the idea of like buying something for life and buying the best quality that you can so that it lasts longer and having, uh, you know, fewer possessions, but better ones and ones that aren't going to be as disposable is a way that and and imbuing that with a spiritual sense and not just saying I'm doing it because I want to buy the best goods possible, but saying that that's what God wants of me is a good example of that is what you're saying. Yes, to to spend more for products because then they'll last longer. And, you know, I imagine some of the people listening to this have a piece of clothing that they have had for decades that maybe they haven't worn it continuously for decades, but they've there's something that they've worn for many years. And, and when we do that, so we have a connection to that item uh, or, or maybe, you know, ceramics that are the case with that. Um, there's actually a Japanese practice of, of, re, of repairing broken pottery. Kintsugi, right? With a little bit of gold in there. To, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Um, and and there's a teaching that that Rabbi Yochanan, who was one of the great rabbis uh, during the the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, that uh, after he left Jerusalem and he was on his deathbed in Yavne, uh, he said to his students to remove the vessels from his room because when he died, his corpse would contaminate those vessels according to Jewish laws of of purity. And then in those times, they would have had to destroy those earthenware vessels. So one of the last things he did was to tell his students to remove those vessels because he was concerned that in his passing, he would uh, inadvertently contaminate durable vessels. So that's another example of a tzaddik, a righteous Jew, who's concerned about physical things even in the last moment of his life. I'm sure you've gotten this uh, or you've heard this from various uh, areas, uh, various members of the Jewish community, there are definitely people who are out there who are very vocal sometimes. And they say, look, the the, the climate is changing. Must be, maybe. We, we're clearly looking at it. But, uh, you know, this is clearly the way God has set up the world. And if God set up the world like this, either this is what God wants or God will come up with a solution and things were, are going to change. But I don't have to do anything. My, my part is not to go and do. My part is to consume the world 
world and to be part of it and to uh, to conquer the land, so to speak. Uh, and so my I don't have to worry about climate change or sustainability. I don't have to change any of my habits. What do you say to people that say that? Well, first, in your description of to conquer the land, so to speak, I would just remove the so to speak, that there are many uh, religious people, Jews and Christians, uh, who understand Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it and dominate the animals and the fish and the birds, to be literal, that God has given humanity license to run roughshod over creation. But Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, said that it's impossible to think that the creator of the world would want us to dominate and, and dis- degrade the creation that God has made, because God is a benevolent creator. And so God created us for there to be life and blessing on this planet and not the opposite. You know, there, there's definitely a prevalent theology among many religious people from many different religions who believe that that you know that climate change is is part of God's plan and that we just need to sort of accept it and celebrate it and embrace it because it's actually going to be good for everyone and it's you know whether it's going to bring the Armageddon and the end of days and it's going to herald the messianic era. Well, I you know I hope that their theology is right because I'm you know devoting myself day and night to to try to promote a livable planet for my children. Um, the problem is, is that that theology, I don't see any basis in sacred, in our sacred texts, and I haven't actually seen a basis in other religions' sacred texts that say that if if we act irresponsibly and degrade God's creation, that God is just going to sort of wave a magic wand or the Messiah is going to wave a magic wand and all of the all problems are going to go away. All the plastic pollution is just going to evaporate. All the nuclear pollution, all the climate, all the carbon in the atmosphere. Um, I have yet to seen a real scriptural source that, that says that. And and whereas on the other hand, and that's part of the work that uh, Rabbi Leo D and I did in Eco Bible is to, to, to provide an ecological commentary on 400 verses in the Torah that draws on rabbinic tradition and draws on thousands of years of Jewish wisdom. Um, to to reveal that actually God wants us to care for creation. You know, it's similar, like if somebody eats unhealthily and doesn't exercise and just, you know, eats donuts all day, and then to say, well, no, God will just take care of me. You know, it's a famous joke about, you know, God sending a helicopter and a ship, etc. Like God gives, this, and this is an important Jewish principle, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about this and a lot of Jewish thinkers, that we have to take responsibility. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, uh, you know, there's this famous quote from Descartes of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, I heard this from my teacher, Rabbi Riskin, I am, therefore I am responsible. That by our by virtue of our being on this planet, it means we need to take responsibility. Um, on the flip side of that, one of the biggest challenges to religious discussions around sustainability, I find, is the movement that discusses uh, zero population growth as one of the most important uh, tenets of sustainability, that the more people we have on this planet, the more we are going to kill it. And yet that seems to come directly in uh, up against a Jewish principle, which is to be fruitful and multiply, which you just mentioned. Is there something uh, of a way in which Judaism balances this or the way you see uh, that we should be balancing this? It's it's an important question, and it's something that we do relate to in, in the book Eco Bible. So first of all, 
as you're aware, according to the rabbinic understanding of be fruitful and multiply, um, a, a couple fulfills that commandment by having one boy and one girl. So in other words, two children is a fulfillment of the Torah commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And, and, and yet there is a, you know, most Orthodox rabbis today um, are supportive of, of having larger families than that, especially within the, the Haredi or ultra-Orthodox community, where the average a woman, I believe, has about eight children. And, and, and that's not only true among Jews, but in most of the population growth in the world is because of religious families, whether they're Muslim or Christian or Hindu, etc., and I actually had an interesting conversation with uh, the the Archbishop of Burundi, mm-hmm. who uh, is the Archbishop, the Anglican Archbishop of one of the poorest countries in the world. There are 11 million people there, and one million have already fled from the instability there. And according to many scientists, there will be no trees trees in Burundi in 25 years. They will have cut down every single tree. And I said to the Archbishop, where the population growth is high and what do you think about be fruitful and multiply? And he said to me, yeah, you know, it's, we fulfilled that commandment and now we need to focus on living sustainably. Um, and it's interesting because in the first chapter of Exodus, there's parallel language to the first chapter of Genesis. In the, in the first chapter of Exodus, it says that the Jewish people were fruitful and multiplied and swarmed and increased very much and the land was filled with them. And so, according to archaeologists, there were probably about between half a million and a million Jews, Israelites in ancient Egypt at the time, out of a total population of three million Egyptians. And so, the Torah itself is using language to imply that the land was filled at that moment in Egypt with the Israelites. And so, to at this moment in history, where there's now 104 million people in Egypt, uh, including several hundred who just drowned in in the sea because they were going on a rickety boat trying to go from Libya to Italy to escape Egypt because it, it can't support them now. And now that we're at 8 billion people and moving toward 11 billion people with the sustainability crisis that we have, and to say on top of all of this that it's a religious imperative to continue to have you know, 4, 8, 10, 12 children... Um, I think that, that the clergy in the world need to have a serious reckoning about this question because it's it's not the whole sustainability picture. Consumption is really a very big driver of the ecological crises, but population is is a multiplier to it as well. Leave us with one last bit that you think every Jew as a Jewish practice can uh, change what they are doing in order to do something a little bit more for the world. I would say that I would encourage people to be a reducitarian. Okay. Reducitarian means if you can eat less meat, dairy, eggs, fish, then go for it. Because especially red meat, but also other animal products have an outsized impact in driving the multiple ecological crises that we're facing. And especially in a time when plant-based products are available and essentially taste the same as hamburgers and other animal products, it's not a lot of skin off our back to to, to make that switch to plant-based, and we do a lot of good in the process. And, and in fact, the first chapter of Genesis, God says to people, eat plants. God says to animals, eat plants. And it was so. And, and Chief Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook said a hundred years ago that that vision of the first chapter of Genesis is not lost for all times, but there will be a time when we come back to it. And a lot of rabbis today think that that time has come. Rabbi Yonatan Nerol, uh, in addition to 
heading that organization, the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. You're the co-author of the Eco Bible, uh, and you also do lead uh, Jewish Eco Seminars. Where do people find out about these? JewishEcoSeminars.com. We do Jewish ecological tourism in Jerusalem and Israel for people visiting the land. Rabbi Yonatan Errol, thanks so much for coming on Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much. Bonjour. And now it's time to show for our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what's your Nachas this week? My Nachas, Avi, is going to be a New Yorker article by the philosopher at the University of Chicago, my own and your alma mater, right? Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> Agnes Callard. Good old Agnes Callard. Oh my goodness, Callard. this is like, have we reached three times in Nachas just for Agnes Callard? She's, she's anything Agnes Callard has um, done or been discussed about. She's, she's just everywhere. Um, is she running off with a grad student, but ethically or apparently? Um, is she not giving her children their Halloween candy? This was another thing she once famously tweeted that she took away her children's Halloween candy. And this was very, um, that was the discourse for that day. Um, but anyway, this article is called The Case Against Travel. And she basically argues that travel is supposed to be sort of transformative. Um, and people imagine it's like this noble thing to do, but actually it's not. And um, people got very angry at the article. People loved the article. People had all different sorts of responses. So I would recommend uh, reading the article. And if you are so inclined doing a search for it either on Twitter or on Google or wherever you do your searches and reading why people are like how people are responding. I, uh, I'm waiting to hear the responses because I did read the article and it resonated a lot with me as a person who doesn't necessarily need feel the need to travel to feel alive. Um, so yeah, put this one on your list. Absolutely. And Avi, what uh, have you got? I uh, I had something that was announced. I have not yet watched it, but it seems fascinating enough that I want to shout it out. Um, there is a new short film coming out uh, in about a month or so from Reboot Studios, which does a lot of Jewish cultural e sort of things, um, called The Anne Frank Gift Shop. Um, and the plot summary from IMDb says, is there a wrong way to talk about the Holocaust? That's the vital question at the heart of the Anne Frank gift shop, a dark comedy about anti-Semitism that packs a vital and timely message. When a high-end design firm presents its plans to reimagine the gift shop at the Anne Frank house, the company's overt appeal to Gen Z sparks a debate about collective trauma of the Holocaust and tote bags. Oh my goodness. Okay, so that sounds amazing. <laughs> and I think that that's what, what this theater camp should be doing a production of. Absolutely. <laughs> Find the script for that, and there you have it. it um, that's amazing. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this was another wonderful <laughs> week, as always. Uh, happy long weekend, Phoebe. Uh, you Canada too. Day? All oh, right, Canada Day. I was going to say, holiday is it? It's Canada Day, so it is. Happy so, Canada Day, or I not. Remember, if you observe I was, it. I was dating. <laughs> Do you know how much I observe this, Canada Day? <laughs> No, um, how much do you observe will, Canada Day? That's right. It's a good question. Avi, how much do you observe Canada Day? So on one of my earliest dates, um, I uh, asked my wife when her birthday was, my now wife. Um, we were still dating at the time. She goes July 1st. And I said, wait, you mean like Canada Day? And she goes, yeah. So now, not only do I have to celebrate, do I get to celebrate my country's birth, I celebrate the birth of my wife and the birth of my mother. Oh my goodness. 
<laughs> so my mother, my wife, and cities. my country all have the same birthday, and I can tell you that it, it can get very stressful. And uh, so happy birthday to my wife, Rachel. Happy birthday to my mother. Happy birthday to Canada this weekend, and uh, enjoy the long weekend. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending July 1st, Shabbat Parashat Chukat Balak. The show is produced and edited this week by Michael Freeman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai it is always one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi.